Hey guys, join us as we start a mini-series on the top five quality management system failures of all time. And in this first episode, we talk about a nuclear power plant. In today's global economy, quality matters. Benjamin Franklin once quipped, the bitterness of poor quality remains long after the sweetness of low price is forgotten. Quality Matters is here to talk about all things quality. So whether you're looking to improve your business, getting ready for an audit, or dealing with failed inspections, tune in, check us out, then get back to doing work that matters. Hey everyone, welcome back to Quality Matters, brought to you by Texas Quality Assurance, where quality management gets simplified. I'm Darcy. I'm Kyle. Thanks for coming back and listening. Woohoo! <laughs> it's a long trip. You got to click the button on the phone. I know. We say this all the time because we re record in batches. So for us, it's been a long time since we sit at the microphones. <laughs> but for y'all, it's just been a week since you heard us. So that's okay. Okay. So Kyle emailed me an article. <laughs> I'm laughing because Kyle is unusually silent because he's eating a kolache <laughs> while we're recording after he just suggested that we start video recording. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he's sitting back being quiet, chewing on his kolache. I don't want to hear, you know, hear the munching. Well, so you could like wait. Back. On your... <laughs> I could. Okay. So Kyle sent me an article, the top five quality management system failures of all time. I have not read it. I just like the headline. So I'm assuming that is in the opinion of this author. We have done no research to verify that these are the top five quality management system failures of all times. No. The author is Dominic Tremontana. Funny. And this was written in September of 2019. So I'm not really going to talk about the article so much as what he says they were and what the cause of them was. Okay. So the first one he lists is Three Mile Island. Um, I did not know what that was. Do you know what that is? I do. <gasps> what? Of course you do. What was it? It was a uh, nuclear meltdown here in the U.S. Mm. And what do you think was the extent of the meltdown? I don't know. Okay. I just answered as much as I could. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So it is a nuclear power plant in the USA. And I told you that. <laughs> Come and, on. I mean And so they built it and there was a situation over a couple of days that they couldn't contain and release. This is one time I really wish we were video recording because Kyle just took three huge bites of the kolache and it's so distracting. I am so sorry. We're trying to get back to you and give you a good episode and Kyle has given me problems. Okay. So it's a nuclear power plant. I had a non-conformance report on it. There were some issues. The employees could not get it under control. It released some bad chemicals into the air. Yes. I'm not going to lie. I tried to read this other article that I found on Three Mile Island to explain what happened. My brain doesn't understand this stuff, and I'm not going to try to read it to you for you all to understand. We'll put the link to this article if you would like to go read it. Um, but 
from what I read, and I do understand, the chemicals released were not so bad as it was led to believe. And I think even court cases were denied because it was like, it wasn't really that bad. Okay. Okay. The quality management part of it, and I just highlighted, this is like a six-page article that I printed off. I just highlighted four or five words (laughs) (laughs) that Kyle's going to talk about. Is it boiled down to inadequate instrumentation and training programs? Okay. So let's talk about how important instrumentation and training programs are. Okay. In a facility, because this is a nuclear power plant. Obviously, this could have been way worse than it was. Yeah. So. Well. Um, <laughs> oh, we're having fun today. Okay. So, uh, lots of important things to go on here. So, what you commonly have in facilities like this is what they call a, a PNID. So, it's a piping and instrument identification diagram. Now, um, Unfortunately, what so often happens is the PNID is laid out at the initial construction, and what they're doing there is they're identifying all of the piping operations, where everything's going, what all of the instrumentation is, where the instrumentation is going to be, what type of instrument it is, what it's supposed to be measuring, what it's supposed to be identifying. All of this is supposed to be laid out from the get-go. Now, inevitably, as you go through the construction projects, um, these things change, and you're supposed to keep up to date with those changes and document those changes i'm just going to interrupt you for a second because i'm so glad you're saying all this it's going to be very important in an episode in a few weeks Ooh. okay so yes very very important to uh, have the pnid laid out properly which also means you got to have the proper engineering folks involved in the development of it to begin with because you have to know what you're measuring and why you're measuring it um Another thing that can happen is as these facilities grow, I mean, you change things. You, you, you repurpose areas for, where for one thing, for another, you run into a problem, you make updates, changes. This is all very, very common. But if those changes are not um, updated on the documentation, then you really don't know what you're measuring. And so it would be like if you're driving in your car and someone switched it from the uh, miles to kilometers and didn't tell you, Mm -hmm. you'd have a hard time not getting a speeding ticket. So I was looking to see, oh, okay, because you said as changes occur, they need to be recorded. Mm -hmm. Um, And it says the plant entered service in 1974 and the accident happened in March of 1979. Okay, so, so that's not a lot of time. It's not, but still changes could mm-hmm. have occurred. I originally, when you started talking about that, I thought it had just been built, but um, it had not. Well, and then the training piece is crucial as well. Because someone has to know what they're looking at and why it's important. So a small change in pressure in one area can mean something entirely different somewhere else downstream. So let's take if we, uh, and I don't know all the details of what they had here, but these are just kind of general information. Yeah, I'm trying to skim it again to try to give you, but it's just, I just, I can't. Um, so let's say we've got a, a vessel, and this vessel is, say it's full of steam or some uh, some sub-liquid or, or gas under pressure. And you might think, oh, well, just a few PSI, that's that's nothing, right? So it's, it's five PSI off. Whatever, that's not a whole lot. My tires aired up to 36 PSI. Who cares? 
Well, when all of a sudden that vessel is half the size of your house, that PSI over that enormous sum of square inches is absolutely huge. So if we have a pressure release from this vessel and we don't have the proper um, equipment downstream to handle that pressure going through a teeny tiny pipe, you can have all sorts of explosions, blowouts, all sorts of terrible things can happen and go wrong. So you have to understand what you're looking at and you have to understand what the implications of these, uh, these measurements are. Otherwise, things can go horribly wrong. So if they're talking about instrumentation and training led to it, there's a lot of easy ways that could occur. So I said we would post this article. And again, this is a separate article that I went and found. Um, but just real briefly, it says there was a minor mal malfunction, and it even has a diagram. Can I see? Um, well, I'm going to read you this first. Okay. A minor malfunction. <laughs> you hear Kyle chewing his food as he's talking. <laughs> a minor malfunction in the secondary cooling circuit that caused the temperature in the primary coolant to rise. Okay. This caused the reactor to shut down automatically, which I think is supposed to happen. Yes. Um, that took about one second. Then a relief valve failed to close. But see, that's what I was just talking about. But see, I don't, I don't understand all this because so I don't even know that that's what you're talking about. But the instrumentation did not reveal that the relief valve closed. Oh no! And so some of the primary coolant drained away. Yes, but they would the think it's full of coolant. The residual decay heat in the reactor core uh -huh. was not removed, and the core suffered damage. <sighs> Anyways, it goes on like it says specifically that the, it happened at 4 a.m. on March 28th at 1970. Eight nine, and then it goes on like at eight six twenty two a.m. This happened at seven fifty a.m. This happened, so it's a very detailed article. If you want to go read it, we'll have the link here. It's the diagram okay. if you want to look at it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you have to have multiple tanks to hold the coolant, and as it gets too hot in one, you can vent into another. It's an incredibly similar concept, very different engineering to the radiator in your truck in your vehicle. So also I, don't know how that works. Okay, well, I'll give a brief explanation. <laughs> so effectively, the radiator in your vehicle is is air-cooled. Um, sorry, Darcy's tapping at me to know the time, so i got to make sure i got my thing here. We don't want to go over. Um, is It's air-cooled as you drive you know, forward. It's got the fan that blows on it. So what it does is it pumps fluid around the engine block, takes away the heat directly from the engine block, and then it runs it through these little teeny tiny coils up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down in your radiator. As air blows across those coils that are filled with the hot fluid, the heat's dissipated away. Mm -hmm. Pretty straightforward. Now, if someone poked a hole in your radiator and all of that fluid drained away, there's no fluid running across your engine block. The engine overheats, the metal seizes, and you're done. So okay. similar thing here, although coolants in a nuclear power plant are incredibly important because these nuclear power plants generate enormous sums of heat. That's actually how they create energy is they boil water into steam. It's nuclear power plant is a steam turbine and the power source is a nuclear reaction. So if it gets too hot, all sorts of terrible things could go wrong leading to a full-blown meltdown of the uh, the nuclear material. But here, if that relief valve triggered, it would have vented excess coolant. But if they did not see that that relief valve um, had triggered, if the instrumentation wasn't correct, or if the person didn't know how to read it, 
to know mm-hmm. that the relief valve had triggered, then you would have um, evacuated a lot of additional coolant. Now, okay, fine, that's what's supposed to happen if it gets too hot, yes. But if you don't know that happened, all of the math that you need to do to ensure that you're pumping enough coolant through the system to keep everything stable, it's all wrong now because you've only got half the fluid or whatever the portion mm-hmm. of the fluid going is. So yeah, this stuff is is huge, but. The individual person might think, yeah, whatever. It, it does its job. It does what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it'll tell me right there if something went wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Not always. <laughs> <laughs> so at the summary at the end of our, the article where I highlighted those, it says, what happened? After shutting down the fission reaction, the TMI-2 reactor's fuel core became uncovered and more than one-third of the fuel melted. Woo! Inadequate instrumentation and training programs at the time hampered operators' ability to respond to the accident. The accident was accompanied by communications problems that led to conflicting information available to the public, contributing to the public's fears. I talk so often when I give examples for folks when we're doing consultation or training, I bring up the communications procedure. Because no one thinks that's very important. Or mm-hmm. if they think about it, they don't think much about it. Now, communication procedure is a fantastic example of a process that you have, but you very poorly document. I say you as a general universal right, right. you, right? Mm-hmm. So people very poorly document this stuff because they think, well, if something goes wrong, I'm gonna call my I'm gonna call this person. I'm gonna email that person. I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna say that. But sometimes there's very, very specific communications that need to go out in a very specific sequence to very specific people in a specific format. And if you don't document that, when the uh, proverbial um, bleep hits the fan, (laughs) you're not going to do things appropriately or properly if Mm -hmm. it's not documented and you've not been trained on how to do it. Yeah. Um, So communication was a big thing. A small amount of radiation was released from the plant. The releases were not serious and were not health hazards. This was confirmed by thousands of environmental and other samples and measurements taken during the accident. So that's great that they were able to contain the uh, radioactive material. But yeah, if you know, I don't that know that they were able to contain it. I think it wasn't enough to yeah. cause damage. Right. But if you send out a message to the local news team or to just the local community to say there's been a release of radiation is anyone going to go you know i bet it's going to be okay well yeah that's what they <laughs> said contribute to the public sphere so this testing to reveal that i think did not happen relatively quickly yeah um so not only were they scared in the moment mm-hmm. they were scared for a long time oh yeah and the longer these problems go on, like it doesn't dissipate very quickly. I mean, this stays with people. And I mean, think about I mean, just what if you wanted to leave the area? I mean, let's say you're scared for your life because you don't know what's just been released into the area that you live. How are you going to sell your house? How are you going yeah. to go somewhere else? It's just going to do nothing but breed hate and fear. Yeah. Sounds a little familiar to never mind. <laughs> I was trying to uh, scan and see. Oh, wow. Because of the concerns, the Pennsylvania Department of Health for 18 years maintained a registry of more than 30,000 people who lived within five miles of Three Mile Island at the time. Wow. I mean, for it, 18 years it, after the accident. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, because let's say that there was a 
hazardous amount of radiation released. Now, anyone listening, you might say, well, any radiation is hazardous. No, it's not. If you ever got an x-ray, if you ever walked outside in the sunlight, there's radiation. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because in scanning, I see the average radiation dose to people living within 10 miles of the plant was 0.08 millisieverts mm-hmm. uh, with no more than one millisievert. So they said the level of 0.08 is about equal to a chest x-ray. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm not saying it's nothing, but there there is a big difference between something and being dangerous. But again, if you don't know for certain how much you were exposed to, I mean, radiation, the way that it kills you is it screws around with the DNA in your body. So you could have an issue and you're not going to see results of it for 10 years. So, I mean, it totally makes sense that they would track them for this long. Well, and so it says in 96, 1996, 17 years after a judge dismissed a class action lawsuit. Yeah. You know, and uh, the judge, Judge Rambo, cited (laughs) (laughs) findings that exposure patterns projected by computer, computer models of the releases compared so well with data from the TMI dosimeters mm-hmm. available during the accident that the dosimeters probably were adequate to measure the release. So basically, uh, there's a lot that she quoted, but just saying it wasn't enough, and yeah. you've had a long time to prove that it was, and mm-hmm. you didn't. Well, those... But that's 16, 17 years mm-hmm. that these people were tied up in this court and legal mm-hmm. action and probably convinced yeah. that this caused cancer or other health problems. And like you said, there's these other indirect results. Like for 16 years, I can't sell my house for a fair amount because I'm close to this nuclear power plant yeah. that caused everyone cancer or yeah. so everyone thinks. Right. And, and even after it's proven that it's not, it's hard to get people to change their mind and believe that. Well, and let's look at this from a different perspective because there's always unintended consequences when we try to band-aid a solution, whatever it might be. <clears throat> so think about this last year with uh, COVID and everyone getting shut down and being at home. So, you know, okay, well, fine. Let's say that it was very successful in preventing the spread from being war, far worse than it could have been. But it also had the unintended consequence of sending a lot of people into a deep, dark depression. You know, we've seen suicides jump. We've seen drug overdoses jump. We've seen all sorts of things happen. We had all the riots from people. I mean, it's just I it's say, a mess. In relation to that, and I hope this is why you guys enjoy our episodes because we'll talk about anything and everything. <laughs> um, our kids started school this week, and um, our oldest is in eighth grade this year. It's his last year of junior high, so they have to wear ID badges with yes. their name on it. On the back of them, Kyle doesn't even know this yet. On the back of them is a, like a suicide prevention hotline mm-hmm. and call this number if you have any problems. It's the first year they've ever done that. It does not surprise me. And so, and, and so then becomes a conversation of why is this on the back yeah. of our things? I think it's sad that they have to put this on the back of our badges. I agree. And, you know, so many of the health problems that these folks might have had, if let's just say that these and agree that these were not dangerous levels of radiation that were released. It was no worse than they got a chest X-ray, which is very, 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 very common. Um, screws people's heads. Mm-hmm. I mean, that can cause you to get sick. That fear, that anxiety, mm-hmm. that worry, that causes us to get sick. So maybe there you could find evidence. So if there was a class action lawsuit, they had to have had people that got cancer and all these bad things from it. Well, 
maybe they did get all that stuff, but it wasn't from the radiation release. It was from them living in fear for 30 stinking years. Yeah. Well, 17. <laughs> 17 years. Yeah. <laughs> so there's always unintended consequences to this stuff. And these mm-hmm. are things that we have to have to consider when things go wrong or even when we try to uh, put a change program into place, whatever it might be is we know the results we want to achieve, but we do have to pause and take a moment and say, what other results will we get that we're not aiming for? Mm-hmm. Incredibly, incredibly important. One of them, this will be the last thing I say, because we're almost 20 minutes here, is one of the most devastating things to me about this is nuclear power is, on average, uh, far safer, far cleaner, far more reliable, far more efficient, far more everything good than any other power source we have out there for large-scale uh, electrical generation. Now, obviously, we're not going to put a Mr. Fusion in our car, you know, like they did in, uh, you know, Back to the Future, right? <laughs> so we're not going to be rock- running around with fusion reactors in our cars. But, you know, everyone talks about, uh, you know, electric vehicles and hydrogen and all of these other power options. Well, my gosh, let's if, – if Three Mile Island hadn't happened – we may have 10 times the nuclear power resources in this country that we currently do today. It, it says it, it was the cause of a major decline in nuclear construction because the public just couldn't accept yeah. it. But um, also in the summary, it says the containment building worked as des- designed. Despite melting about one-third of the fuel core, the reactor vessel itself maintained its integrity and contained the damaged fuel. That's fantastic. So it just, you know, it sounds like, I know I can't say it's simple, but, you know, training and instrumentation and communication are key points of a quality management system. And it it looks like they weren't handled very well. Of course, this was in the 70s, so Mm -hmm. I don't know how big of a thing quality management was then, but. No, I I agree. I mean, it's, um, it's. I, I said this when we talked about uh, the accident investigations recently, is it is never the big thing that people expect to go wrong that causes things to go catastrophically wrong. Oh, absolutely. It's the little things you take for granted every day. That complacency is what will kill you. Mm-hmm. That's a good note to leave on. All complacency right. will kill you. <laughs> Hey, this is Kyle with Texas Quality Assurance here for the Quality Matters podcast. You know, one of the things that we're seeing over and over this year is the emphasis on ESG requirements, on reporting and compliance. And unfortunately, for a lot of our clients, this seems to be a very fuzzy, vague area on how they can show what they're looking for for their organization. Contact us. Let us know if you're having any trouble here. We can help make sure that you have the product support and certifications required to show the evidence you you need to keep bringing in the business, keeping the lights on, and taking care of your people so that you can get back to doing work that matters.